Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I am Leo Flowers. Today's guest is Brittany Means. She is the author of Hell, If We Don't Change Our Ways, a debut memoir that talks about how her she struggled with depression and suicidality and how that can come on at an early age and how it can be complicated by one's understanding of religion and faith. Welcome to the podcast, Brittany Means. Hi, thank you so much for having me on. I'm, I'm excited to have you on, Brittany, because, you know, reading your story and also following you on Instagram, uh, pretty funny, entertaining with the cats and the, and the farms and everything. Talk to us about this title uh, of the book and, and how that came about. I know you discussed it in the book for, for the listeners out there. Yeah. So this is a saying that a lot of people in my family used. Um, if we were in the car, usually one of us kids would say, like, where are we going? And people in my family would always say, to hell if we don't change our ways. Uh, and my mom used it all the time. And as I got older, I realized she was usually saying it because it was a good fallback joke because she didn't know where we were going. Um, so for her, it was just a fun little quip to dodge answers she didn't have. Was your mom always so nomadic, just, you know, hopping in the car, going from place to place? Was she being chased by cops or was this just like kind of a survival thing? Um, one time we were chased by cops, but for the most part, uh, she had an abusive boyfriend, Mark, who's in the book, uh, and he was stalking us and would follow us from place to place and find out where we were. So we kind of had to stay on the move. Um, and she was struggling with addiction. So that was part of it. Um, you know, showing up, trying to find a place to settle, but sometimes there would be big blowout fights so it was kind of interpersonal reasons you know you're how old are you now i am 30 30 years old i would imagine there was a challenge in sharing this story because there's so many people who feel like who are in their 70s or even 80s and feel like they don't yet have a story to tell and here you are at 30 and sharing this story what made you say, I need to write this story and get it out into the world? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think I've always used writing to process things. People in my family are big storytellers. So if it's like some big event in their life or even just going to the grocery store, they were always turning it into like a long narrative, including every detail. So I think my brain kind of formed around thinking of things that way, recounting them. And then when I found out I could write, uh, it just became my way of processing. So I have been writing about things that, I mean, I wrote a lot of poetry, which was a nice way to stay distanced because I was very abstract about things. And then I tried fiction. And when I was in college, I took a nonfiction writing class and uh, really started writing about things there. And I had a professor who was really supportive, Joel Chrisman, and she took me aside and was like, you are a writer. I was like, what? <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I think I started thinking of it as a book in college. Shout out to the teachers pulling students to the side. Usually you're getting pulled to the side for trouble. It's like uh, <laughs> you're talking too much or spit your gum out. But here the teacher's inspiring you. Yeah. Let's, so let's go a little deeper in, into your story personally. 
depression, suicidality. Um, where did those symptoms begin for you? It's hard to say. Um, my mom struggled a lot with mental health. She had really high highs and very low lows. Um, so I, I think I grew up seeing like really big emotions and my emotions were pretty muted. I think I was more of an observer and I, all of my stuff was really big, but it was internal. So I think, yeah, it's hard to say when I really started having my own troubles because I just assumed like all of your big, bad emotions are inside. <laughs> and then I, yeah, around middle school, actually, I, I had my first big bout of like real depression. I'd been sad and I dealt with trauma, but that was the first time it was like, everything was just gray and everything was hard. And yeah, just, it was like being in the muck and I didn't really understand it because I was growing up in a religious household where it was like, if you pray, things will get better. And, and I was praying and things weren't getting better. And I was like, well, this stinks. Yeah. yeah. Talk, you said sad uh, versus depression. Can you talk to me about how those two felt different? Because I, I could imagine there are listeners out there that are still struggling to determine, am I sad? Am I depressed? And how does that feel different to me? Yeah, I think depression manifests differently for different people. But to me, like when I was a kid and my mom would disappear, I would be like bereft and I would cry and I would go like sit in the barn loft and watch the road and just feel big feelings. But when I was depressed, it was like, um, I just couldn't feel anything. I felt like negative and unsettled but for the most part like if I tried to cry it was like flexing and then nothing happened I couldn't get released from it I just felt like just everything was muted and it, like waking up was hard going to school was hard eating food was hard um I think the big difference is just like an all-encompassing mute versus sadness which is like I think healthy to express sometimes and let it linger and then know when to walk away from it. But depression, I just couldn't walk away from. Wow. That, that's a, a beautiful description. I, I never thought of it that way in terms of it, um, you know, feeling unsettled and negative uh, and no release. I think that was the big thing where when you're sad, if you cry, usually there's a bit of like, ah, like I feel so much better and I can go on with my day where like, you can cry and be depressed and be and still be like, oh, I'm I'm still here. You know, it's yeah, it's like wow, it's like you're never waking up from a nightmare, kind of. Yeah. How did you navigate at that time? I mean, you're a kid with these, as you describe it, big internal bad emotions. Um was there were there attempts when you were a kid or um uh, how, or how did you manage that? Yeah. Uh, I talk about this a little bit in the book. It was a much longer section and then I condensed it. But um, I know for a fact that my first attempts were when I was 11. 
And that's because I was living at the barn, which is my grandparents' house way out in the country. And um, yeah, I was dealing with depression and I was realizing that my mom was going to keep leaving and I missed her. And I just had all of these feelings like everything was, it was stuck and I just felt bad all the time in like such a huge way. And I thought like, I mean, my mom had talked about killing herself. She used to talk to me about her attempts. So I just felt like that's an option. Um, But being raised in the church, I was taught that suicide was an unforgivable sin. So I, I thought like, well, I don't want to go to hell. (laughs) So do I stay in this hell or do I commit to that hell? And I talked to my grandma. I didn't tell her what I was thinking. I'm sure she picked it up just based on my question, but, um, in Pentecostal faith, 12 years old is when children supposedly become responsible for their own sins. So I was like, I'm 11. So if I kill myself now, maybe it won't count. Uh, so I remember asking her, like, if someone's not 12 yet and they commit suicide, does that still send them to hell automatically? Uh, I was very interested in like loopholes at that age. So yeah, she, and she told me like, yeah, that still counts. I think she was trying to, she wouldn't talk about it with me, but she was trying to urge me away. Um, but yeah, I, I had a lot of attempts when I was 11 because I thought like, I've got a, a literal deadline. I have to get this done before it counts as a sin. Um, sorry to laugh. I know it's not exactly no, I, laughable. Well, I'm glad you're laughing because it speaks to, I heard uh, Sarah Silverman talk about how whimsical, um, wanting to end our life can be where, you know, even one of the reasons I started this podcast is because uh, there was a woman who was in the bathroom ready to end her life and then heard her baby crying and was like, oh, I got to go feed the baby. And that's what saved her life. And so it's like that window is so small of one. It's not like she wouldn't fed the baby and then came back in the bathroom and then, you know, yeah, ended her life. She was like off and run and taking care of her baby, you know? Yeah, I think... That's such an important story to tell because um, I have, you know, I have people in my life who I really love and in in the worst times when the urges have been almost overwhelming, I've thought like, I can't leave my brother. And I think about how harmed people would be and that helps. Um, But one of the most important things, not most important, one of the most um, crucial things for me has been thinking about my cat, which sounds so silly, but any port in a storm, you know, I think like when I leave the house, sometimes I just go outside to like water the garden. I can hear her inside yowling. And so I think like I need to be there to give her food. And I think about like, if I didn't come home one day and not just like I was going to come back in a few days, but if I was gone, I think about her yowling. And like, sometimes that's, that's enough and and like obviously the people in my life are enough but having and obviously a baby is way different from a cat but yeah I, I connect with that story just because having something dependent on you sometimes feels so huge and overwhelming and other times it can be an anchor that's that's interesting because i think about 
the times where I've thought about ending my life and, 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 you know, it's, I'm always, I'm typically in a relationship and, and a part of my brain thinks, well, they'll be fine when I'm gone. Yeah. Like they'll, they'll be taken care of, like they can take care of themselves. You know, uh, I'll leave them some money behind that kind of thing. And, um, but you know, it's different. Like you said, with a cat where you go, who's going to take care of the cat? Yeah. Um, yeah. Once again, it's like our, our brain, our brain's trying to look for loopholes of like, how can mm -hmm. I do this? And, you know, everybody will be cool. And, you know, I can, I can kind of, it's kind of, it looks kind of justified from my angle on some level or whatever. And, um, and then you get out of that, that space and you're like, Whoa, what was I thinking? Like that's, yeah, that was ridiculous. You know? Yeah. Sometimes looking back on the times when you were like really struggling with the urges is like when you almost trip and then you look at what you would have fallen on and you have that like flash to an alternate timeline where you like impaled your face. Um, sometimes I think about how close I got and I'm like, Oh, I'm so glad I didn't just trip and fall. Um, yeah. And, and also you using that analogy of like the thing that makes you trip and fall, right? It's like mm -hmm. some tiny little crack. It's not like a, somebody stuck their foot out or, um, you know, like a, a huge barrier. It was just a tiny little thing that almost tripped you up and ended your life. And, yeah. and and sometimes our thoughts can be like that. It could be just be these little tiny cracks in the sidewalk that we trip on. Yeah. End up impaled. Um, so you're, you're 11 when you start having the attempts. It sounds like your grandmother was kind of an anchor for you also. Was, am I reading that correctly? Yeah. Um, you know, she was, she was a huge support. It was a complicated relationship. Um, but in a way, um, I, you know, I had a lot of religious trauma, but sometimes I'm grateful that before I really developed like risk reward processing in my brain, I was still so young that it was like, yeah, dying, you just die and then it's over. Uh, I, I didn't really have like the capacity to understand what that actually meant. And so in place of that, I had religious terror. <laughs> so I was like, so scared of going to hell that I didn't go through with it. And even in the times when I tried, I think there was still some restraint because of how scared I was. Um, so in a way she, she provided that. And, and in addition to like, you know, in her own way, asking me how I was doing. And even though I understood, I couldn't say like, I feel like I'm falling into an abyss. I, I still could like tell her, you know, I'm a little sad today, even if that didn't cover it. Um, so yeah, she was, she was a great support. Yeah. How do you communicate your emotions it, it, today at, at 30 years old and having written a book? And I'm sure you did a lot of research on not only your experience, but other people's experiences. Um, how do, do you do you just say I'm sad? Do you have a number? Uh, do you sign language? Like, how do you communicate where you are at any given moment? Yeah, um, this is still something I'm working on because. I, th I think I've spent a lot of time in therapy and I have so many check-ins with myself and so many things that I do when things are bad that like, if, if I have like, sometimes it's, it's just a good day. And then there's just that thought, like I could, and that begins like a whole cycle. And so I know like check in with myself, like what could have 
led to this? Is there something that happened today? And then after that, I'm like, well, why did that have such a big effect? And what can I do about it? Or what can I think about differently? And so I have so many steps for helping myself that sometimes I I really just forget to include other people. And a lot of that is growing up, having to be self-reliant. But I think a lot of it too, is that I, I feel like I've gotten really good at getting myself out. So sometimes I will I will go through the pit. I'm like at a negative 200 and then I bring myself back up to two <laughs> and, and then I see someone and I'm like, wow. And all the time that I was just like fighting to stay alive, you had no idea. <laughs> um, but I, I do, I, sometimes I, I will pull myself out of it. Like this is too much. This is too internal. This is too solitary. I'm just going to go, like, I'll go talk to Jeff and I'll tell him like, I'm having a bad time. Um, or sometimes he just notices and brings me some food or something. Um, or I call my brother, Ben, or I call Shirley. Um, so I, I try to reach out, but for the most part, it's, I have like all of these different, it's like starting up a spaceship, like press this lever and then turn this and then check these. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. So it, it sounds like we, in terms of the steps, cause I, I think that I'm in a 12 step program myself for a thing. And and I think that uh, to hear, you know, how people actually get themselves out of the well uh, is very helpful because I, I, I'm always assuming somebody's listening in is your first step to, to reach out to Jeff. Like what's, what's your first step? Walk us through the, the steps. If, if there is like a specific plan of getting yourself out of a 200 foot hole. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think it depends. Cause if it is like a good day, say I'm out with friends, we're at the botanical gardens and I'm thinking, this is so lovely. And then that voice is like, but you could die. <laughs> um, the first step for me is assessing, is this, is this just one of those intrusive thoughts because things feel too good. And I'm nervous that if things are too good, then the other shoe is going to fall any second. So this is what my brain is doing to me. Or is there something more that I need to like poke at? Is there some kind of bruise I need to prod and figure out what caused it? Um, so it's a lot of, like, you could see me walking around the botanical gardens and think like, she's having a nice day, but in my brain, I'm like, do I want to (laughs) die? Um, so yeah, first step is just asking myself a bunch of questions. Uh, yeah, Albert Camus said, "Should I kill myself or go get coffee?" <laughs> hmm. And I'm More like, of a tea person. Yeah, oh, me too. Yeah, I'm, um, I, well, I used to be like green tea, and uh, but caffeine doesn't really agree with me very well. So now it's herbal tea. What's your favorite tea? Uh, I've been drinking a lot of throat coat. Got, oh yeah, yeah. I because I recorded the audio book and they had a bunch there. And I was like, this is actually really good. (laughs) (laughs) That that's your, you know, when we talk about depression, suicidality, uh, and just mental health in general, since we're talking about throat coat right now, um, have you noticed, um, any changes to your nutrition or diet or how you eat and, and how that plays it, uh, how that has an impact on your mental health? Yeah. Um, my freshman year of college, I went vegan. Um, and some of it was 
women in my family are prone to strokes and I was looking into how I can not have a stroke. Um, that was the thing I found. Um, but another part of it was, uh, I, I think I wanted to connect to something, some kind of ideology. And I really connected with the idea of, um, of, of just compassion with bigger bounds, I guess. Um, and since then, I think, I don't know if it's the diet or the mindset around the diet so much. I think it could be a combination, but I think I'm, I don't have such big low swings. And a lot of that could be age because of the time when I went vegan. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I do, I still, I still cheat from time to time. They have those like flaming hot con limon Doritos. So occasionally I'll eat those also when I'm sad, <laughs> but, uh, I think, yeah, having a diet that I connect to and it feels like nourishing myself and nourishing the way I think of myself in the world has been important for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I would imagine then, um, for me with depression, I just decided I need to take a shower every morning because I can go a week <laughs> without taking a shower. Uh, but now that I have a girlfriend, that's not really acceptable anymore. So I was just like, Leo, you just even if you don't think you need the shower, take the shower because you might not want to take the shower later on. Are there things that you're like, I need to do this every day? Or like, is there like a, a morning or evening or some type of a routine that you've incorporated? Yeah. Um, for me, it's been exercise. Uh, it's been like so important. I I've had times where I get migraines, so I can't, I can't run or do any of my workouts. And I've noticed like on top of being in pain, cause sometimes I'll get a migraine after working out or just a migraine. And I'm like, man, I'm in pain, but I'm in a relatively good mood. Um, but yeah, I'll notice on days when I can't work out or if I have a string of days where I can't, that it, it's like, why is it so hard to do all of the stuff that I usually do? Um, so yeah, even if it's, I try to at least do like a brisk hour long walk, um, or run or go on a hike or some kind of YouTube workout. And that's, yeah, it, even when I'm like laying on the floor and I feel like my head is flattening like an old pumpkin i'm like all right just get up and do it and then you'll feel better and i almost always do like the only time i don't is when i do it too hard and then my knee hurts or something mm. the fact that you said flatten like an old pumpkin i was like oh yeah <laughs> she's a writer for sure <laughs> like that visual i'm like wow <laughs> yeah there's something i love i love laying on the ground it's something i started practicing Mm -hmm. recently as a way to decompress and my masseuse told me to do it and whether it's laying on the ground or laying uh just on the floor in, in our house um there's just something soothing about it versus being on a couch or in a chair or standing up i'm just like ah oh. it's yeah. like i could just let go kind of deal and it um, counts as yoga because it's the corpse pose technically <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, what is it, uh, savasana or, or whatever. Yeah, the oh, corpse yeah. pose, the other, like whatever the the word they have for it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, you now going back to your mom. Uh, you said she struggled with addiction. Was it alcohol or were there other drugs involved with that? Um, 
it was usually harder drugs. Um, it's hard to say what all she tried. I know a lot of it was just escape. So I don't know if she had like a drug of choice. All I knew is sometimes we were like going, 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 and she was really happy and really excited. And then sometimes she would sleep for days. Um, or sometimes, I mean, like I found paraphernalia. I was too young to really know what it was, but as I've gotten older, I realized like, I, I think she was using heroin at one point. So just kind of a, it was hard to know what exactly was going on at any given time. Yeah, yeah. So I would imagine you have to become very self-reliant at a very young age. I, I mean, is your, your brother, I'm assuming is younger than you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so you, you become, now you're a parent at 11 years old, taking care of a younger brother on some level, making PB and J's or <laughs> ramen noodles. Like what do you, what are you feeding them? Uh, I used to make him salmon patties. Uh, he really liked those would, like crush up the crackers and make the little patties and fry it and stuff. Um, he always brings that up whenever we're talking about like the weird stuff we ate. Cause we ate a lot of ramen, um, or like oatmeal or just put a bunch of vegetables together and be like, it's a stew. But he always brings up like, he made me those salmon patties. And I, I don't really remember doing it that often, but he, he seems to think we had it for like every meal. <laughs> so you had, you know, you, you travel around a lot. And when we travel around a lot, it's, it's really hard to establish connection, friendships, bonds, or any type of uh, continuity in terms of our story, you know, uh, is it, something lonely about going through experiences and not having a, another person there who has a similar experience or shared experience with you. Is that where journaling came into place and writing? Is that something you took up early on? Um, my mom wrote a lot of poetry and she would read it to me and I was, I was a kid, so it's not like I could be like, oh, I really love the slant rhyme here, mom. <laughs> I was just listening and I loved it because she wrote it. Um, but I remember like looking at her notebook and she had like a favorite blue gel pen and she had like very loopy cursive and I would turn the page over and take a pencil and like trace her cursive on the back. So I like wrote all of her poetry backward. Um and then, yeah, I tried journaling here and there, but we moved around so much. So I would have like a little notebook and then it would be gone. And then I would like draw pictures and write stories for them. And then that would be gone. So I'm sure somewhere out there is like a loose collective journal of my childhood. But um, I, I did have, there was a, I was living with a relative once and I started that was there for like a few months. So I started more regularly journaling. And then that relative like read my journal one day and confronted me about, I think it was suicidal thoughts that I had in the journal. And then I just didn't do it again for a long time because the idea that someone would like see my private thoughts was so <laughs> like, everything was very internal for me. And so it was a big risk externalizing it. And then having someone invade that was probably i i don't think i journaled again until maybe college i think wow yeah i mean it, now you're 30 you're in a relationship with jeff how do you when he does something that bothers you right 
how do you have that conversation? And, and I'm bringing it up because, you know, if, when we grow up and we feel we have to mute ourselves because everyone around us is having such these big emotional experiences, um, we kind of lose that skill, that ability. And when, especially when we don't see other people uh, modeling healthy communication skills. Are yes. there, is that something that you find you're still working on or do you feel like we got this nailed down? I know how to communicate with Jeff. Yeah, it's the second one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're, we, it's, it's very weird uh, growing up with a lot of like passive aggression or just don't talk about that or, um, you know, not really good models of communication. Uh, it's very weird sometimes to reflect that if, and there really isn't, there isn't anything like a recent conversation I can think of that we've had to have, but anytime there has been something, I'm just like, my love, can we please talk about something? <laughs> and then we talk about it. And uh, yeah, it's, it's hard to access the person I was when I was in a relationship and something would be really bothering me. And I felt like I couldn't say it. Like, I just can't imagine feeling that now I remember feeling it and I remember how big and real the barrier felt but these days it's like if I need to say it I'm going to say it and I don't have to worry about a big blowout fight or that he's going to disappear or something um yeah was that was that I would imagine that was a a, a worry or something that you know you were concerned about early on you know because the, the, with the mom disappearing and and then being like oh is this guy going to disappear how did you, how do you work through that? How did you work through those thoughts and emotions? Um, I've never actually had to worry too much about, I've, I've never had like a big fear that Jeff was just going to walk out and never come back. I think when we were first starting, uh, we very first started, we were friends with benefits. So I was always kind of like, he can go at any time and I have to just be ready for that like told myself I would be fine with it. And, and like, we still are like things ever suck, hit the bricks. It's fine. <laughs> um, just that understanding that you're never obligated. You're always here because you're choosing. Um, but the, the bigger fear has been, um, again, it's that, it's that old habit of things are really good and that's scary because good things always go away, which like I'm old enough now that I have enough experience that I know that's not true, but my brain still functions like it's not or that it is. Um, but yeah, my, my big thing is sometimes I just get these huge overwhelming bouts of anxiety that like Jeff is going to die. Um, like if he goes to take the trash out. I have to like force myself to stay seated because I want to go look out the window. Like, Oh my gosh, someone has run over Jeff or Jeff had a heart attack in the street or, uh, just these really irrational, huge fears um, that's, I think because I know the relationship is so solid that the only thing that feels like a real threat now is like some force of nature. Oh, that's, I never thought about that where we think if we get to this place in our life and our relationship, uh, you know, it'll, it'll resolve these issues, not recognizing that then it can bring up other issues that we hadn't even foreseen. Like, I'm sure you didn't imagine you were like, Oh, I would love to meet somebody who, you know, I don't think is going to leave me. And then you meet that person and you're like, 
oh, well, now they, they might get hit by a car. Like, this is too good. Yeah. Like, something's <laughs> got to happen, right? This this can't be possible. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so how do you talk? Do, do, how do you talk yourself through those moments? Are, do you do some tapping? Are you just like sitting with yourself? Or are you, you know, in that moment when you could feel that overwhelming anxiety uh, strike? What, how are you navigating that? Um, it's a, it's a lot of also talking to myself, um, and just sitting in the fear. So a thing that has been really helpful for me in general with anxiety is the, it, it may be, it, I don't think it's the approach for everyone. Cause I've talked to other anxious people and they've been like, that sounds awful. Um, but for me, if, if I have this like huge fear, um, especially with like PTSD stuff that like something's going to hurt me or this person in the grocery store is about to attack or, or something that's like big and my body feels like it needs to react. I just force myself to sit in it. And then I use the, the lack of huge impending doom as evidence for myself. So if I feel like the ceiling's going to fall on me, I force myself to sit in the spot where I'm afraid the ceiling will fall and it doesn't fall. And then I have to be like, okay, now what do you do with all these big feelings now that the thing that you were afraid of hasn't happened? So if Jeff like runs to the store and I'm at the house and I'm thinking, okay, the store is five minutes away, but he's been gone for this many minutes and here's the math for how Jeff is dead right now. Uh, I just force myself to sit in it and I think of like all the other times he has come home. And then I don't always like win. <laughs> Sometimes I text him and I make up something like, Hey, do they have gushers <laughs> just to get a response? Like he's alive. Or sometimes I will just message him be like, how's it going? I started to be afraid you were dead. <laughs> I, I really try not to do that because that's a lot of pressure on someone. Um, but, but yeah, I, I just, I try to make myself sit in uncomfortable feelings and get comfortable with them. Uh, which is really hard, but I think it's slowly working because life is so full of uncomfortable feelings. It, it is. It's, it's so true. We we think if we if I just go to therapy and I journal and I <laughs> you know write a book and travel the world and meet somebody that you know will find peace and serenity, and it's like no no this no life is you know anxiety is part of life. It's not you don't get to a place and you need to escape all of that. Yeah. Um, your, your brother, how, you know, I would assume you and your brother have a very close relationship. Um, how has he been navigating um, his emotions without, yeah. you know, saying too much about him? I mean, that's, that's his in his life, but. Um, he's, I just talked to him earlier uh, and he is very anxious right now. We're anxious people. <laughs> Sometimes we call each other and it's like two startled birds stuck in a Walmart <laughs> talking over the intercom. But yeah, he, I mean, when he's anxious, he does stuff like reach out to me. Uh, usually he starts the call with like, Ooh, I've got some big anxiety. And then we talk it out. And uh, a thing we really have in common is that sometimes we'll have like big anxiety or big frustration or just something that's really big and we just need to rant about it and I think he's the only person who really understands that like once I'm done with the rant it is like 90% better I just needed the rant 
I think a lot of other people in my life hear the rant and they're like, now I'm mad too. And what are we going to do about it? And I'm like, ah, but the rant was what I did about it. <laughs> um, so yeah, he, we're both big into rants. He, um, he has a dog now, so he's always walking that dog. He calls me sometimes and it just sounds like he's like on the world's shakiest buggy. And I'm like, are you walking the dog? And she's running. He's like, yeah. Like, and you chose to call me now? He says, yeah. I, I I love that. It's true because, you know, I that that skill of learning how to listen and give the other other person space to share what they're feeling without trying to fix how they're feeling. Um, that's something that most of us aren't even aware of. You know, mm -hmm. we think, oh, they're upset. There's a problem. They're calling me because they think I can solve the problem. And it's like, no, calling you is me taking care of the problem. Because mm -hmm. um, you're right. As soon as I pick up the phone to call somebody, the intensity of the emotions dissipate uh, yeah. immediately. Like I've called 988 a couple of times and like just calling them, just knowing somebody's going to pick up yeah. and hear my shit. I'm, I'm like, I'm cool. <laughs> I called you at a 10, but by the time they pick up, I'm at a seven. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, you know what? I think I got this. You know, like it's. <laughs> It's just, a, a, I mean, I still, I, I still need them to talk me down to, to mm -hmm. zero, but, um, but it's, it's so, so when you are ranting, do you call them and say, Hey, I'm just going to rant or do you just <laughs> launch into the rant? Uh, I usually say, so get this. <laughs> and then I just start. <laughs> uh, that's how he knows it's coming. And sometimes I say, so get this. I just saw a big bug. So it's, I probably should have a better lead in. So he knows like, is this going to be a rant or did you just see a big bug? And then if you want fix, like if you actually want help, do you have a different lead in for that? <laughs> um, I, yeah, I think, so he's a therapist and I, I try not to ask him like, give me therapy or like therapize this situation. But sometimes I will ask him like, um, I like to, you know, gas him up a little, like based on your expertise <laughs> um, or just like, you know, what's your professional opinion about this? And you, I'm not asking for advice, but I would like your insight. So I'm, I, yeah, I like to be pretty explicit if I'm asking for advice. Um, Cause I, you know, I'm, I get irritated if somebody's like, here's what you need to do because I've had to like figure things out so much. But at the same time, I so strongly have that tendency. If my friends are complaining. I'm like, I know exactly the labor code you need to reference to your boss or, or that kind of thing. Like my brain is always looking for solutions. Um, and so I've, I've worked really hard on getting into the habit of like, if you would like to workshop this i have some ideas but if you just want to complain i'm here to listen to that too um and I, again that's the thing i sometimes fail at especially when i'm like oh i know the answer to this um but that's not what people need sometimes uh yeah i love that if you want to workshop this my, <laughs> all my friends when i ran to them via text are like that sucks and then that's <laughs> it and i'm like yeah you're right and i'm like i feel so seen and heard right now thank you oh. <laughs> The, does church play a, uh, a role in your life today? Uh, it doesn't. I, I think I had such a, 
a negative experience in Christianity that I, when I got older and I had my whole religious crisis, I just needed to find like my own, I, I guess like my own idea of like why I was here and what I meant to do. And I think the answer, the answer changes a lot for me. And, uh, I, I have like a sense of like, for me, like community and collectivism and humanism is kind of my driving thing. If I think of spirituality, um, but I, yeah, I think just because of my experience growing up, the idea of going to a church gives me the wig. <laughs> Can't, I don't think I could do it. Um, I like community. I just don't, that type of community, like Christianity specifically is, feels very far from where I am now. Yeah. This idea of when you travel around a lot and you get to see how similar we all are, the, the values that we all share, it's, um, it's hard to be like, all right, but I just want to be with this group of people. Mm -hmm. um, it feels like you're excluding people instead of including yeah. uh, people. For some, for some people, uh, that's, that's how I, that's why I never joined a fraternity when I was in college. <laughs> I was like, why would I just pick 10 guys to be a brother with when I, the whole <laughs> campus can be my brother. You know what I mean? Like that, that exactly. never made sense to me. Uh, well, all the humans can, can get together. The, <laughs> Were there any um, prescription meds or drugs that were part of your journey uh, to where you are today? Um, Adderall. I, I really did well on Adderall. I um, started in grad school and I come from a family of like people who start a lot of projects and don't finish them and people who interrupt a lot and talk on wild associations that you only understand because you love them and no one else would know why they just went from this topic to that topic. Uh, and then in grad school, I was like, well, I'm writing a lot of papers, so I should probably have some medicine for that. And I got some and it was like, I'd spent my whole life in like a super noisy crowded room and I couldn't focus on anything. And then I took Adderall and it was like, all the other sounds died down and I could just have a straightforward conversation and like just being able to focus. Um, and, and that's also when I was like, I had my, my favorite therapist I've ever had. And I was like really getting into things because I was working on the thesis and, um, yeah, just having the focus while I was focused on like healing and unpacking things, uh, and, and also just not feeling so like stressed all the time. I know Adderall kind of has the, the, um, reputation as something that like makes you go fast, but for me, it helped things slow down. Like my thoughts are always racing and it finally, it was just like, I can think of one thing at a time. Uh, and then the DEA really chomped down on Adderall. So I don't have it anymore. And that's, why I'm having a hard time staying focused on these answers. <laughs> oh, so um, it wasn't prescribed to you, the Adderall. Oh, it was. Yeah. They just, um, it got very hard to get doctors to keep filling the prescription. Wow. And also like no pharmacy has it. You, sometimes you have to go to like four different pharmacies just to get a prescription filled because um, yeah, I, just Google like DEA cracking down on Adderall and get angry. <laughs> um, 
yeah, I, I joke sometimes that like, it feels like I'm going to the doctor and I'm saying like, Hey, I need crutches. And they're like, well, we found out that a bunch of people are getting crutches and putting them in their butt. And so we don't prescribe those anymore. And I'm like, well, I don't do that. I use it for the thing that I need it for. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's, it's maybe not the best analogy, but again, I don't have Adderall. So here we are. <laughs> Oh, that sucks. I mean, yeah. truly, is is this something that because, you know, writing the book, did you have it while you're writing the book or or uh, is this something that you had to like, you know, bear and grin it? Uh, I had okay. it when I was working on like the first draft and then I had it when I was first editing. Um, and then when I moved here, it got a lot harder. My prescription didn't transfer. And there are like really long wait times in New Mexico to go to a doctor or a psychiatrist or anything. And eventually it was just like, okay, well, I need Adderall to withstand the process that it takes to maintain having Adderall. Uh, and it, yeah, it just, it was a lot. And some places you have to like go in and get a P test every week and that's it's just a it's so much to maintain um so yeah I've I've finished out the book without and it really was like you know how some people will get so into bingo that they will like take their little trinkets and they have their little rituals that's what writing got like for me because I was like okay I can't have any light in here but I need this much light and I'm gonna put a hat on because things are too loud <laughs> um yeah it's, it's, it's hard enough like not having Adderall, but having it and then suddenly not having it and trying to, you know, edit a 300 page book was hellish. I can't imagine. Did that impact your sleep at all? Going off um, of it to go from being on it to being off of it or did going on it affect your impact your sleep uh, also? Mm -hmm. I think the when I was on it, like it does have side effects. And one thing was I, I was like clenching my jaw in my sleep. So I would like wake up sometimes. And I was like, my face hurts. Um, but for the most part, I don't think it really impacted me because I, I wake up pretty early naturally and then I would take it early. So it would wear off with plenty of time before I went back to bed. Um, but yeah, going off of it, I think I... I had some trouble just because it's you take it consistently and then you don't have it. It can, you get kind of, it's, I think one of the withdrawals thing for me was depression. I would get really low. Um, if I like, I, I didn't even take it every day. I would just try and like parse it out because I, again, I have migraines. So it was a whole balancing act. Um, but yeah, when I went off of it, I would get really sad. And then sometimes when I'm very depressed. I'll just wake up a lot in the night and then I just have to lay there and think about nothing. Um, so yeah, it's, it was pretty disruptive. Have you found a way to heal or forgive your mom? Um, this is one of my favorite things to talk about <laughs> because I think for me, forgiveness didn't really feel like a necessary step. And I, I know people define forgiveness differently. Um, and I think there's this idea that when you, when someone harms you, that forgiveness is a necessary stage you have to go through and healing from that harm. And for me, I, I've just, I never really liked that because 
at least my my definition of forgiveness when I think about it is like absolving someone. And I never felt an obligation to absolve people who had harmed me. And with my mom, it really didn't seem like it wasn't part of how I thought about things. Like I was mad at her for a while when I was younger. Um, and then I needed a lot of distance from her. And then I kind of came to understand the things about her life that I had known before, but I hadn't really absorbed. So for me, it was like going through these stages of like getting mad for myself and then building boundaries and then understanding her. But I, I never really, I never wanted her to like reckon with any of it. And some of that is because, um, you know, she has her own struggles with mental health and um, she has, yeah, she has a disconnect from reality. So I think even if I, if I really like craved forgiveness or forgiving her, uh, I don't, I don't know that that's something that I would necessarily be able to get, even if I wanted it. Mm. That, that's, that's a powerful statement. I'm glad you highlighted that. Uh, what, what does the relationship look like today? Are you talking to your mom as often as you talk to your brother? Uh, definitely not as often we, we talk, um, it's, yeah, it's, it's very, very different from the relationship we had when I was younger and not even just because the power dynamic has changed. Um, but I think, you know, a long life of like using hard drugs and trauma and instability, um, she's not especially present and she has a hard time remembering things and keeping track of stuff we've talked about. And, um, she just doesn't remember a lot that happened back in the events of the book or even like a conversation that we had last week. So, um, now our relationship is, is more like, I just try to communicate in ways that she can still understand that like, I love her and I'm still here for her and I will take care of her however I can, um, while still maintaining like what feel like healthy boundaries to me. And sometimes those boundaries move around, but, um, yeah. And I think we still have a really loving relationship. It's just the, the mom I knew growing up. I don't, I don't think she's present anymore. Besides the, the writing and the poetry and the creativity and the storytelling, uh, what else, what's another thing that you're grateful for from your childhood from growing up? Oh my gosh. Like so much. <laughs> um, I am really grateful for just how weird everything was. And I know like a lot of bad stuff happened and obviously that sucks, but there was also just like my family being so absurd. I think like now I don't, I don't, I don't think anyone can come to me and make me feel weird. Like if someone just needs to scream at the top of their lungs. I'm like, sure, I'm here for it. If someone is like cackling and nothing's happening, I'm like, me too, why not? <laughs> um, I think spending my childhood with people who were just absurd people has, has broadened my ability to love people and understand people. Um, and then, and then, yeah, I had like so many unsafe experiences that were so much fun. Like, 
um, my cousins and my brother and I used to all like ride on the hood of my grandpa's car and he would just go like careening up the hill and we would be hanging on to the hood or like my uncle tied a sled to the back of a four-wheeler and let us take turns dragging each other on it. Um, or we would just like dig holes out in the forest. Like there was no oversight, no sense of like kids need seatbelts and vitamins. It was just, uh, yeah, rural wilderness and a bunch of hillbillies having fun. And I'm really glad that I got to shoot a potato cannon with my grandma's hairspray and a lighter into the side of the house. And thankfully nobody got hurt. Uh, yeah, there, there's a lot that I'm grateful for. It sounds like fun times. Uh, is there any part of your story that we haven't discussed that you think would be of benefit to anybody struggling with depression or suicide? Yeah. You, um, you mentioned earlier like how narrow the window can be between like, having suicidal urges and, and making it to the other side, so to speak. Um, and for me, when, when I was working with a therapist, um, the first therapist I really talked to in depth about suicide and, um, just like how urgent it can feel sometimes. And, you know, one of the questions they always ask is like, do you have a plan? And I didn't really know what it meant to answer that. So the I think the first time she asked me, I was like, yeah, my plan is like, if I can make it to Monday and I still want to, I will. And that was like, I, and she was like, well, if you say you have a plan, we're supposed to take action, but it sounds like you're telling me that you're waiting until Monday, hoping that you don't still feel this way on Monday. Um, and then we talked about that and it was like, I hadn't like read it anywhere. It was just something that I started doing, like looking for loopholes to live instead. So telling myself like, this feels really bad right now and I want to more than anything. And so to give myself quote unquote, what I want, I'm going to tell myself like, okay, this day is when you can do it. But until then just hold it together. And then always when that day comes, I'm like, I'm really glad I waited. I don't want to now. Um, so it's it's kind of like bargaining with myself that I just have to hold out until this day. And then if things are still as bad as they feel right now, then let's reassess. And I've never reassessed. And it, again, that's maybe not the healthiest one, but it has worked really well for me when it's like, I'm just done and I want to be done. And so I tell myself like, okay, wrap some stuff up and... Um, I think find ways to bargain with yourself as much as your brain is, is telling you like, here's this thing that'll be fine if you do, or here's why this isn't so bad. You can, you can bargain the other way and say like, if I could just make it to Monday, or if I can, if I can finish this puzzle <laughs> or something like give yourself footholds is, I don't know, maybe Maybe that's just helpful for me, but that's something that has helped. Oh, my my girlfriend would love that anything would bargain in it. She'd be <laughs> all over that. I hate bargaining. I, like when I go to those flea markets mm -hmm. and they're like, oh, you know, two for 10, five for eight, or, you know, we can negotiate. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I don't just tell me <laughs> what it is. I don't, I don't like this back and forth. I hate buying a car. Oh, my God. Bar but. 
but also recognized um, in the 12 step program, they mm -hmm. also talk about bargaining where it's like, you don't have to be sober for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. Just today, just today, just see what happens if you commit to the steps today and then tomorrow you can have it. But, but yeah. today, you know, so yeah, I, I think that's a, a common uh, a tool to use to, you know, buy yourself another 24 hours uh, at the very least. Um, what are you looking forward to in the next 24 hours? Mm. Um, I'm going to go play Yaksa. Maybe tonight, maybe tomorrow. Um, I love those games. And sometimes I'm like in the middle of my day. I'm like, ooh, I get to play Yaksa later. Um, what's is it? Oh, is what's Yaksa? That's not Yahtzee, right? It's a, something no, else. No, it's like Yakuza. It's it's a video game series where you're like an ex Yakuza member, and it's like very violent and ridiculous and bombastic. Like you can go disco dancing, you can do karaoke. When you punch people, money flies out of them. <laughs> um, it's yeah, it's like a game <clears throat> that I wait. Sorry. She's drinking her throat coat, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it's a, a game I use to like decompress. And it's just so goofy that I've, I've had days where I've been really low and I'm like, oh, I'll play Yakuza. Or like Jeff will boot it up <clears throat> and be like, just play for a few minutes. And then it does the trick. It's just, it's wild. Yeah, you know, it goes back to what you were saying earlier about ranting, right? Where I have to ask myself, do I want dialogue or do I want a distraction? Like, mm -hmm. do I want to talk about this? Well, I, I guess I'm not even looking for dialogue when I want to rant. I just want to dump. Do I want to dump? Do I want dialogue or do I want a distraction? Oh, I like that. Dump dialogue. Oh, That's a really good one. <laughs> um, I feel like there should be a fourth one, though, but I, I'll figure that out. Uh, dopamine. Say it again. Dopamine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, that's like something new. Oh, I guess oh, that's distraction. That would be, but but I like uh, because um, sometimes distraction can be like like you play that game every all the time, but like dopamine would be like something new, like novelty to me. I mean, it, it, yeah. they would both be dopamine, but sometimes. You just need to go somewhere you haven't been to or do something you haven't done before to kind of help yourself reset. So I like that dopamine that's going on. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, Brittany, this was awesome. Uh, tell everybody the name of your book and where they can get it. Oh, it's not yeah. even out yet, right? <laughs> yeah, it comes out October 3rd. October 3rd, uh, everywhere Amazon, Kindle, all those things. And, and she had her throat coat. So that she could do the audiobook version. So you can also listen to it while you go for a walk or a drive or, or you know, dig holes in the forest, whatever you're <laughs> into. I'm not mad. Uh, uh, thank you for joining us, Brittany. Thank you for listening. Uh, listeners, remember, this podcast is not a substitute for calling the 988 or any of the 1-800 hotline numbers that are listed in the show notes. Uh, no matter where you are in the world, you can call. You can be in Budapest or New Zealand 
there are international phone numbers. You can call, chat, text. You can go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. Let's get to tomorrow together. Thank you so much, Brittany. Thank you.